Hello and welcome to Some Other Sphere, a podcast discussing the strange, eclectic, macabre and esoteric, hosted by Rick Palmer. My guest for this episode is author and host of the Myth, Legend and Law podcast, Siobhan Clark. In her podcast, Siobhan discusses a wide range of stories from her native Scotland, which feature a fascinating mix of characters and settings, and date as far back as the early history of the nation itself. We talked about the storytelling traditions of the people of those times, the cultures they came from, and of course, some of the legends and mythical creatures that have haunted the imaginations of Scots for over a thousand years, perhaps even longer. Uh, just one point of housekeeping. At one point, I talk about the hangman card in tarot and how it follows the judgment card. That's incorrect. It actually comes after the justice card. Anywho, that aside, I hope you enjoy the episode. Siobhan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Rick, for having me. I'm a fan of the show, so this is, is really exciting. Well, it's great to have you. So um, in your own podcast, you look at a variety of myths and legends and lore, often with a connection to Scotland. Uh, mm. How far back in time do those stories go? And uh, just try and give us an idea of the of the people that would be telling those stories. Sure. Well, folklore in Scotland, um, it's such an interesting kind of field. And um I think that when you start to look at it, you can actually trace some of the beliefs or the ideas and the stories as far back as kind of Celtic mythology. And um, certainly with some of the links that I've been looking at in the kind of areas in Scotland, um, even the influence of Norse mythology is in there as well. Um, so it's 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 quite incredible that, that you can kind of get a sense of how far, how many generations of uh, people have been kind of keeping folklore alive and, and kind of continuing, um, which is just fantastic, really. And um, I think certainly that um, there is something that we want to keep alive. And um, with the pod- podcast, I'm hoping that that is kind of, I'm achieving that aim is kind of sharing these stories, keeping that alive as such. Oh, okay. So um, some of the stories that you talk about in your podcast and some of the the creatures that you talk about when are they when are they first kind of coming to attention in a in a more in a in a broader way so being written down i suppose yeah um well the the norse had more of an oral tradition of um kind of passing along their myths and legends and things like that and the Celtic people, by and large, they were an oral tradition as well until kind of early Christianity. And then they started to record some of their kind of myths and their beliefs and um, certainly some of their, their stories and legends. So um, I guess if you if you were kind of looking at that sense, that would be a good place to, to start is there. Um, as it changed over the, the years and the generations, you would get people who would start collecting um, folklore, different stories, and um, record them. And we have some wonderful folklorists um, that have written superb books and collected as much um, of the, the tales as they could to kind of preserve them. Um, so that's kind of the way that it, it's travelled, in a sense, um, to, to us today. Um, it's when you kind of start looking closer at the stories, you can find a thread that leads you back to a more distant kind of story or um, things like that. Certainly, uh, some of the the creatures that I've been looking at recently, um, you can tie 
the the, the threads of the, you know their descriptions and um, what the stories are actually about. Um, there's parallels with older myths as well. Okay, and so do you th- are these stories um, a mixture of cautionary tales and tales for entertainment, or because I, I with I folklore, I, I kind of it, it seems that some seem to be cautionary mm. stories about you know not going somewhere or um, yep. but then other ones seem to be sort of almost more you know telling for around a telling around a campfire and like you yeah. say is there was an oral tradition I'm one thing that interests me is just trying to imagine what it was like where stories aren't written down yeah, <laughs> um, and they're not in, they're not in books you know <laughs> and uh-huh. I'm and I'm, I'm always fascinated about what that must have been like so so was there a variety of stories in, in, when, the, when it was an oral tradition? Oh, absolutely. So certainly um, folklore can be slightly different, I would say, to um, typical myths and legends. Um, folklore, it, like you say, um, it, doesn't, it, can, it can cover a variety of subjects. So certainly with myths and legends, you are kind of looking at um, a tale of a hero in some kind of adversity and there's an adventure or something like that. It, they can tend to be kind of grander and they might have more um, kind of direct lessons in that sense, I guess. And when it comes to folklore, it can cover a variety of things. So it could be um, a, a simple way of passing along um, a piece of wisdom when it comes to, say, something like labour or um, some kind of manual work that people are doing. So um, you do get the, the, the folklore tale that doesn't seem to have a mythical creature in it or a hero or something like that and then you you also do get those tales where it is a little bit more exciting and you feel like you're discovering something Um, so folklore it it really encompasses a whole range of of ideas of storytelling Um, and also not just in the way of of telling a story it could be in a ballad or a song and certainly in poems and there, there's quite a, a rich um, kind of tradition as well of um, folk songs um, that are passing along stories and tales. Um, and so it, it could be around, um, traditionally, um, you would have a gathering. So um, that could be just a family or it could be a wider kind of group, a community coming together, either for a festival or some other reason. Um, and somebody would relate the stories um, to the people that were listening. Right, yeah, I, I remember you playing some music at the end of your episode about kelpies, which was which yes. was lovely. Like it's, it's such a great way to end that episode. It it really kind of made you well, it really really made you think of of, of kelpies. <laughs> Absolutely, I think um, I I really uh, kind of fell in love with that song a little bit. It played in my head certainly for a little bit longer after the the episode was done. Um, and it was when I was just researching, I came across some folk ballads. And I thought, gosh, um, I wonder if I could get a recording of something. And um, and certainly there, there are these things to be found, which is just marvellous. Hmm. So would most people in the community, I'm, I'm trying to imagine a community of nearly a thousand years ago, I imagine there, most most little villages were, you know, in the countryside. Would most people in that community have been telling stories or would it have been someone in the village? Yeah, so uh, you, you could have it in just enough kind of, um, setting where it's your family and they're passing along stories from generation to generation um, and then in, in other kind of um, groups um, 
in you know a long long time ago you would have uh, either a, a wise man or a woman who would collect um all these stories and relay them to to the group as a whole um certainly for you know um if it was going to be the, the celts or if it was the norse you would have um a kind of a, a wise man or woman or a scald um which was a, a sort of poet who would memorize all of these tales and tell them to a group of people so it certainly has changed the way that folklore has kind of um as we know it today it's changed quite a lot from what it would have been about a thousand years ago and um and our, of course our lives were very different um at that time as well so i think these stories would have had more of an impact um certainly you know we, we've got so much technology now and we have advanced so much but in that setting, these um, stories or folklore would have been very, very important to their day-to-day lives or um, when it came around to a particular time of year, if they were celebrating a festival or something like that. Right, yeah. Um, one thing I was thinking with uh, with an oral tradition and someone's a, a storyteller then is that you either have to have an amazing memory or be really good at improv. <laughs> totally. <laughs> I think sometimes that's why there might be a variation in tales. If you look... Um, a piece of folklore from one area to another. You've got different groups of people um, telling it. They're maybe wanting to impart a particular message at a different kind of point in time. Um, I think it would it would absolutely be a complete gift to be able to memorize, mm. you know, these these stories. And certainly, when it, you look at the um, Norse poems and things like that um, from the Poetic Edda, um, it, they're, they're so intricate. Um, and even for us, kind of reading them today, it's, it takes a lot of reading. It's a lot of understanding. Um, so for somebody to to memorize all of this, it was a real art and a skill. Certainly something that you trained to do. It, you know, unless you were very gifted and it came very very naturally. But there was an awful lot of time taken to to memorize all of that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's one thing to have an idea, but then it's another one to kind of carry that into a narrative. I've I've tried doing it before just to see if I could, and I. Like I, I get a basic story going, and then, but then I get to a point where I'm like, well, wait a minute, what, who was this character that I just came up with? And so, yeah, it's an incredible yeah. gift. I, I tend to fall down rabbit holes, and I go off on a tangent, <laughs> and um, I start to, this is really, really interesting, actually. <laughs> you know, kind of veering off of the main kind of subject and things. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I do that when I'm researching for podcast episodes. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's the same happens with me when I'm, um, I try very, very hard to um, kind of, I've got my main subject, I know what I want to talk about, and then I know that I want to look at kind of similarities and parallels other in other places, but trying to scale that down so it comes to like a cohesive kind of um, episode, and really, it takes a work sometimes. Yeah, I, I agree. And another thing I was thinking, that, and you, you kind of hit on it just a little bit a few minutes ago, is the... Um, it's hard to kind of there's a quality to things like the the edders that's maybe not what we sort of not so much don't understand but it's the people reading them when they were first written it's it was a different world for them and i'm i'm reminded of the Mm. film arrival where the protagonist the protagonist learns an alien language and then she starts to Spoiler, spoiler for anyone that hasn't seen the film Arrival, I'm sorry. But, <laughs> um, but then she starts to experience time differently. And, and yes. I thought that was an amazing idea that that your the way that you kind of understand something can change your very 
world. And I sometimes I think that the past could be could be that different. Do, do you understand? Yeah, um, definitely. I think when you're um, what can be confusing sometimes is the the concept of time in a mythological world. Um, because I think what we tend to like is we like to have a beginning, a middle and an end. So we like to know Mm. where we are right now, what the future is or what the past has been and kind of work on on that kind of scale. But when it comes to mythology, um, because it's a a cyclical um, sort of um, concept that's running through it, you're trying to imagine whether what you're reading is a story that has happened in the past or is it what is to come? And then also where you are in the present as well. So it can get a little bit confusing. Um, and so I think when it comes to that, the best thing to do is to accept what you're reading as part of the story. And you perhaps know um, something about that God, or this is another situation that they are in. And try and accept mm. it that in that kind of sense. Because I think even when you look at um, sort of Ragnarok, and it's talking about you know the the twilight of the gods and a new world. It's hard to to think. Well, okay, gosh, is that that hasn't happened yet, but I'm reading about it. How, how it's yeah. going to happen? <laughs> so it's it can get a little bit confusing. But it's a brilliant it's a brilliant thing to to try and wrap your 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 mind around. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, can, it hurts you. It hurts your head, but it's, yeah. it's it's really it's really fascinating. It really is. Yeah, I think sometimes when I've just about got got it, I think, okay, have I really? I'm not sure. <laughs> but um, no, I really liked that in that movie that explored that that whole element of of time and what it actually was. Yeah, I, I, I agree. So let's get into some of the creatures that you talked about mm. on your podcast. Um, how about we start with selkies? Oh yeah, absolutely. So Selkies, um, I guess when I was growing up, it was certainly um, a a piece of folklore or a myth that I had heard. And um, I think probably it might be one of the more well-known kind of Scottish um, folklore tales. Um, Certainly there's been kind of films and um, quite a lot of stories based on it. But the Selkie essentially is um, a seal that has the ability to transform into that of a human when it comes ashore or onto dry land. Um, and it does this by shedding its seal skin. And um, there are varying kind of stories about when their selkie um, can actually perform this and for how long they can remain in human form. But the, the main thing is the seal skin. It's very, very precious to them. If that's lost or stolen from them, they lose the ability to go back into the water as a seal until they find it again. Um, and so there are quite a few stories when you when on that thread where seal skins have been stolen um, and a woman, usually it's a woman, a young woman, has been trapped on land and um, she begins to live life as, as a human until eventually she finds her skin again. And, um, and usually when this happens, they feel this overwhelming urge to return to the ocean. That's their natural home. Um, and it's, it's just it's one of the more romantic, I would say, um, sort of tales about sea creatures. Um, the other ones that we'll, we'll talk about um, are not just quite, um, I would say, it's, um, their, their natures aren't just quite as nice as, as the Selkie. Um, and, and and in that sense, some of it's quite tragic. The folklore surrounding them, right? Yeah. So when would when would people have been kind of aware of it 
existing as a folkloric entity. Yeah, do you know, it's, it's one of those tales where it has its roots, I, I think, possibly, um, in much older mythology. And throughout um, the space of time and telling of the tales and folklore, it's probably gradually altered and changed and become this, um, this being or this um, shape-changing um, kind of creature. Um, with the, the Selkie and the, the Finfolk, um, which we'll, we'll touch on as well, um, there, there are some theories that actually they are linked in some way to a group of people who were called the Sea Sami. And um, it's really interesting, that, that whole aspect of it, because the islands of Orkney and Shetland and um, the mainland of Caithness, where the majority of these tales come from, they were um, quite. The, their history is quite heavily influenced by Norse mythology because of um, the Vikings and settling there and things like that. Mm. And so um, they brought with them their own tales of the you know people that they would have been um, encountered as well. And uh, the Sami were the a common theme of um, seafaring people who um, had kayaks or canoes that were made of sealskin. So that's a link to the, the idea of a seal-like creature. Um, they probably dressed as well in kind of clothing um, made of sealskin as well. And um, they were seen to be magical. Um, they were a kind of, um, I would say that they, they were regarded as non-sorcery and um, quite kind of otherworldly kind of people. Um, so when you kind of look at that, um, you can see where a kind of story is or an idea is coming together of these people coming from the sea who are really, really very different um, and influencing the, the islanders or the people that were there at the time. And over time, it's maybe progressed and become people who actually transformed and, you know, from seals, once they came onto dry land, they, they were human. So it's, it's kind of, you can see where it's sort of coming together a little bit. Yeah. I, what was the sort of, in terms of the people that live live on lived on Orkney, who who settled it first? Is it Gaelic people or is it somewhere that sort of it seems like it might be somewhere mm-hmm. where different different people have settled there over time and it's it definitely seems like somewhere that's got its own identity. Yeah, it, the, the islands really do. It's it's incredible and it's something I'm still learning a little bit about. Um and I guess um when you're in an island community and you're removed from the mainland, is you're going to um, have your own set of folklore. And I didn't realise just how incredibly different that they were, their own set of kind of beliefs and history. It's, it's really, really interesting. But um, so we know that there were Picts um, on the islands and then the Norse um, starts coming somewhere around about the ninth century in settling. And um, they, at first it would have been um, raiding parties, but then after that it was people that came to settle on the islands and they intermarried um, with the people that were there. So certainly on the islands they would have had um, pits there at some point who practised Celtic belief. Right, okay. So um, what other uh, Orcadian beasts from folklore have you, are you interested in? Well, yeah. So um, I guess the the from kind of the 
point of view of talking about selkies, the the next group would be the finfolk, um, mm. which are yeah, they're 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 not the nicest, I would say, um, <laughs> at all. <laughs> um, so yeah. th- this um, group of people also come from the sea, but they don't seem to have the same constraints that the selkies had. So they could, um, it was in particular the fin man. Um, so he would come ashore. And um, he was uh, disguised as um, as a man, you know, wearing heavy clothing. And um, it wasn't until somebody, an unfortunate person, would get close to them and realise that this was not all, an altogether human uh, being. Um, the the Finn folk were said to be able to. They were kind of um, masters of the sea, and um, they were apparently able to travel vast distances um, in these small crafts that they brought ashore when they did come ashore it was really you know their their purpose was to abduct people and take them to their underwater uh, kingdom which was called Finfokahim and um, and once a person was taken generally speaking they were never seen again um, and there were a couple of ways where people might be able to protect themselves and that was by carrying silver which is quite interesting um, uh, yeah <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so yeah so that that was um, essentially what the Finn folk did. Um, so you had the Finn man. Um, so he would he was generally a pretty kind of a grim character. Um, but then there was also the Finn wife, and that's that's quite interesting in in another way as well. She had quite a different purpose um, than the Finn man. So the Finn wife typically would um, appear as a, a woman. Um, you know, she she really didn't look any different at all. She would insert herself into the community um, and offer her services. And it's quite interesting there as well because it touches almost on witchcraft when you start to read the folklore. And she, um, by offering her services, she would earn payment um, in silver again, which would be, the, you know, um, it's almost like a payment of some kind. And that she sent back to the Finn man. But um, it's quite an interesting, when you do start looking at the Finn wife, it certainly touches more on the kind of witches and witchcraft kind of angle of the, the idea about magic. And there's even the idea of um, they had black cats and things. So it's, it's quite strange. It's it's like a kind of an amalgamation of lots of different threads of folklore to describe her. But um, but getting back to the Finn man, um, and just that, that that the whole kind of Sami, uh, sea Sami angle again, um, it's considered that, and certainly in Shetland, um, that the when the Norse or the Viking settlers came, they were telling stories of a group of people called the Finnar, which to them were the sea Sami, and um, possibly somewhere along the way, Finnar became Finn man, um, and that's where that story kind of maybe started or began. Right, yeah. When I was um, doing some reading about the Finn folk, it, I did read that mm. they um, they came from uh, the, under the sea, like, and they they would come yeah. and and take people. And that reminded me a bit of um, I have a bit of an H.P. Lovecraft story um, oh. where there's this town that then the people of the town have kind of entered into a weird sort of arrangement with these entities that live in a in a city mm-hmm. under the sea and it's it, it, it but yeah. then I, I, like you were talking about the 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 finn man and finn woman aspects those seem those do seem more linked to 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 witch witchcraft the the finn folk aren't 
they're not fish people is what I'm trying to say <laughs> no <laughs> no it's the, the descriptions of them um do kind kind of vary the the one sort of thing that stands out is the um and there's certainly the the clothing that they wear there is this thin like um I, I'm not sure if you would say it was an apparatus or yeah or what it was that they used in order to propel themselves through the water at great speeds and able to cover great distances as well um as well as having an underwater kingdom there was also a hidden island um that was called Hildeland right. which actually in old Norse actually means hidden island and um the idea of a hidden island in that is apparently meant to be a, a sort of paradise or something like that it happens quite a lot um, in kind of folklore and mythology that there's this this unattainable place that people can't get to but it's said to exist there um and so in orkney the um the the island called hildeland was um there was a hero who managed to retake it from the finmen and it was then named einhalo and einhalo is actually an island in the orkney islands it's um it's also mentioned in the orkneyinga saga um as well so which is quite an interesting um kind of point there too right yeah so is there a point where i guess it's hard to tell really but because then when these stories are written down, they're, they're, the the oral tradition is what well, is in the past, I suppose. But is it was there a period when this sort of story would be being told, and then perhaps it would be told less? Um, I think yeah, I think so. I think probably um, when cultures began to change, I would say that um, there would probably be a real shift. Um, when the the islands of Orkney and Shetland um, were no longer um, under um, Norwegian rule and, and came back to Scotland. And at that point, um, things changed an awful lot. So even with um, kind of Christianity coming in and uh, the popularity of these tales were maybe pushed aside a little bit for more kind of um, tales that we would recognise today. Um, Although in also in saying that, um, the islands do tend to have quite, um, I would say that they've, they've kept a hold of some of their folklore a little bit better than perhaps we have on the mainland. And I'm not sure if it's because of that distance that because they are communities that are kind of separated and a little bit further away that they've managed to keep some of these more interesting tales a little bit better. Um, so I think um, possibly the although the, the idea of um, kind of gathering everybody around to share a folktale um, or, you know, retell um, a myth or a legend, that, that obviously, I mean, it's not um, a, a regular occurrence nowadays or anything. Um, there must still have been some form of people keeping these, these tales alive. Yeah, uh, yeah, definitely. Um, uh, one thing I, I have noticed, and uh, it, it seems a commonality, is that a lot of a lot of folklore in Scotland that comes from from Celtic mythology and Norse mythology and and, and Gaelic stories is there's always a, often a connection to to water. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that's one of the things that I found that kind of fascinated me and really got me kind of um, down this this kind of the, the the route I've been going with the past few episodes in the podcast. Um, so water um, was it was. Um, 
worship there was water worship um with the the celts certainly and um that that did happen in um scotland and we know by um kind of archaeology from wells and springs that certainly um people were offering and um, making offerings to either the, the divinities or the gods or the spirits that they thought um were connected to these these wells and springs and um and the celts also believed that a well was a passage or a connection to the other world. Mm. So, um, the, yeah, so they were making kind of offerings of um, jewellery or everyday kind of items that they might use, um, kind of domestic kind of items. Um, also, the, there, there has been evidence of animal, um, I guess I'm not sure if perhaps sacrifice might be too strong a word, but um, evidence of kind of... Um, an animal and human um sacrifice maybe it could have been just offerings it's it's too hard to tell it i suppose um so yes yeah, so there, there was this this cult of, of water worship going on um and so that when i started reading into that and looking at some of these creatures of the ocean and bringing it all together and um, you could actually really understand where people were kind of coming up with these ideas that there were creatures um, that were supernatural um, that lived in, in the water. And um, th- there's just so many to, to come across. And I, actually, I've got a couple that um, I haven't put into a podcast yet, but um, that are really, really interesting to talk about. Oh, cool. Well, um, go ahead. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> um, yeah, so certainly the, there's a, a really interesting story, and it's called the Cairn Crown, and that comes from the area of Caithness. Um, Caithness is the mainland and um, it's separated by the Pentland Firth. Um, it separates Orkney from Caithness. So I think the general idea of the area um, of, of this story is quite important. And also the, the presence of the Norse um, at this, this time as well. So the, the Ciaran Croan is said to be an immense sea creature. And it had... Um, the when there are kind of poems, Gaelic poems and verse that have been uh, managed to keep um, kind of alive. And um, I've got the, the verse here for you. And it goes something like, Seven herring are a salmon's fill. Seven salmon are a seal's fill. Seven seals are a whale's fill. And seven whales are the fill of a Kieran crown. And then in some occasions, um, Apparently, when I was researching this, and there's a wonderful book by um, John Gregerson Campbell. It's it's really really interesting, and it's on the Gaelic otherworld, um, and that's folklore and stories that he gathered. Gosh, about you know, it's, it's quite an old book now, um, but there's an extra line um, somewhere in there um, is often used. Uh, it says, Seven Kieran Crowan are the fill of the great beast of the ocean." Wow. <laughs> so. Yeah. <laughs> when you start looking at that and you start reading a little bit more about um, some of the traits that the Korean Crone has, it really, really starts to um, have some similarities to Jormungand mm. of Norse mythology, which was the Midgard serpent and the serpent who encircled the world and bit its own tail. So... Um, the Kieran Crowan is apparently also has the ability to shapeshift into a much smaller creature. And when it did this, it was effectively drawing people in, fishermen, people like that, um, who might be at sea. Um, and once it had them, it would then transform back to its original kind of monstrous state and capture them. Um, 
another interesting thing about the Kieran Crowen when I was researching it, it was referred to, um, I was suggested rather, that it was a whirlpool. So once I started investigating that a little bit further, I found out that there is a whirlpool in the Pentland Firth. And um, it's kind of referenced in the Orkneyinga saga. Um, and there are occasions where um, it describes um, Norse or Viking ships being sucked into this whirlpool. It was so strong. And it was called the Swelke. And in Old Norse, it was called um, Svalga, which means the swallower. Right. Which is quite interesting as well. <laughs> so <laughs> it kind of it develops from there. And you can kind of... Um, you can see where it's got similarities and where, you know, people might um, look at it as having kind of um, uh, the root of that story could possibly be within a natural kind of explanation or the, the explanation of another mythical monster. Yeah, I mean, that sounds a bit like Scylla and Charybdis in Greek mythology. They're, they're both monsters and one was one for someone that formed a whirlpool and one was a big old, big old dragon. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the that's really interesting because the Kieran Crowen, um, one of the descriptions is like a dragon-like creature. Um, other descriptions are it's more snake-like or serpent-like. Right. So there's kind of there's lots of different ideas of what it actually looked like. Um, but it, it takes quite a lot of, of digging into and research to to find out more about it. It's it's kind of um, it's although the the Gaelic verse has been kind of um, remembered in a way that the actual creature itself seems to um have faded away a little bit more and um but i, I did like the idea of the the whirlpool and um you know the, the the norse connection there um and certainly in norse mythology when it comes to whirlpools um there is a, a um, story it's a grota songer which is the the poem of grotier which was a giant stone millstone right and um it's um it's the reason why um the sea is salty. Basically, it ground out salt and is turning at the bottom of the ocean, which creates a whirlpool, um as well. So I, I quite liked that as that too. Hey, it makes sense to me, you know. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> when you're in this world and you're you're researching what you are, you're like, okay, yeah, no, that's that that's okay. <laughs> so I guess, I guess the people um that where where this where these legends come from, they would have been living off the sea wouldn't they they would have been fishing yeah, and absolutely. and they would have had a i mean it it makes sense that they would have encountered big animals and yes. and maybe kind of ascribed absolutely. attributes to them like like these because i mean i guess if if the whales that they're talking about were dolphins or porpoises or something then mm -hmm. i guess that there is stuff that's big enough to eat seven of them and then but i guess it's the seven whatever i don't know what can eat seven yes. kieran sorry i'm going to murder this pronunciation seven kieran crowen nope that's absolutely um, right <laughs> yeah that's pretty that's pretty big but i like it i, I like it a lot um yeah. it's funny my a friend absolutely. and i were a friend and i were sort of we weren't arguing but we were talking about which which kind of culture and or civilization has the best has the best sort of mythology in terms of its gods and creatures and stuff and and my friend was firmly in the camp that that norse mythology has the it's like the, it's the most metal of the of the of the, yeah. mytho of the mythologies, <laughs> but uh, I, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's I, I would have to agree there. It's, it is pretty great. <laughs> 
I, I, I am completely, yeah, um, I, I kind of grew up with um, being told uh, the, the Norse myths and legends. And um, my grandfather was brilliant. He was very, very into all of that and it really indoctrinated me at a very young age. And um, it's definitely stuck with me. Um, although I do, I love um, the where I, get, I now get the chance to sort of look at um, other cultures and their mythologies and you know if there's parallels or similarities there it's quite exciting <laughs> I like to find these things um but definitely um the one mythology I keep coming back to is Norse mythology yeah I mean I, I know what you mean I, one thing I always uh, I, I sort of imagine is that I'd like to see a story where uh, like a Norse god has to kind of go through the the under underworld of ancient Egypt or something and deal with yeah. deal with mm-hmm. the, those entities there because i know i know at the end of the in the egyptian underworld you have to pass through a series of challenges and then your your heart is measured against an ostrich feather and and if it's lighter than that mm-hmm. you you get to go off to to the afterlife but if it's not then it's devoured by a demon and and you're kind of wiped out of yes. existence and, <laughs> and the and the egyptian book of the dead is like a, a cheat guide full of spells that you have to use Absolutely. to even get to that point and I don't know. It's, it's got to be a film there somewhere, surely. <laughs> oh, I, I would definitely say so. <laughs> I, I think so. I, I actually, um, the more reading I've been doing, I've been getting into the kind of more magical kind of aspects and even kind of shamanic um, kind of aspects of Norse mythology as well. It does get to get quite um, kind of, uh, it's almost trance-like when you read some of the descriptions of um, the states of being and the ideas that they had and some of the mythological kind of ideas or concept, concepts, it's, it gets quite out there. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, I, I, th- I think um, you can kind of get the impression that Norse mythology is full of it's full of beings that are like fighting a lot and, and kind of punching each other and stabbing each other with swords. And, and that is true. But there's also lots of beings that use cunning and, 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 the, and you know, oh, o- Odin hung himself true. upside down for like nine days, I think, yeah. to... Absolutely, yeah. Sacrificed himself for for knowledge. Yes, definitely. Um, there's a there's actually it's it's quite incredible when you um start kind of looking into the the poems and things. Some of the the ideas about um revenge or vengeance or um what was acceptable um or you know in order for you to to fight or reasons or you know things like even in the sagas um. It, it is quite some of it can be a little bit bloodthirsty quite shocking um but it's also i think it, it's it definitely um it gives you a real sense of the mindset of the people of at that time the the world that they were living in that um you know violence was very very it was very present and real to them so it, i guess when when they were retelling the stories to each other it would make perfect sense that you know you would take an axe out and you know your sword and defend yourself and go off on a on um, a quest or an adventure and uh, you know maybe not all of you would come back and things like that. So. <laughs> yeah, you lose an eye or an arm. Or... Totally, that was <laughs> one thing I, d- I did read a little while ago that I found interesting is that the, there's a card in in tarot the the hangman card, oh, yeah. um, and. Uh, in that the it's not what you might think it's not someone well it, it follows it follows judgment i think in the in the series but it's 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 been thought that it's it more relates to kind of being hung upside down and you know akin to what odin odin did to to achieve knowledge rather than being 
punishment mm-hmm. it, it represents that and it's seen as sort of a like an archetypal image really and it's funny how I mean archetypal images and gods go go hand in hand I suppose yes absolutely no that's that's actually really interesting um I hadn't I hadn't ever thought of that before but um I really like that um, and Odin was um on an internal quest for knowledge um, he really had a thirst for it and um so much so that he did you know sacrifice himself in order to gain that knowledge there was always he was always it was it was an eternal quest of his um you know to to know everything that he could possibly know and and for good reason if um you know if you have um three the, the Norns, the three women who have prophesied um, Ragnarok and, mm. um, you know, the, the eventual doom of, of um, the gods and the world as they know it in, in their realm. Um, you could see why he was so keen to to have knowledge of of what was happening in, in the world and what was what was coming, what was what lay ahead, if, you know, if possible. Yeah. And um, going back to um, the connection with water, I, I watched a a, a TV series a little while ago, all about um, Scottish locks, and there was one episode where um, they found a, a wooden sort of well, statue, I suppose. It was in a place called Bala Balahulish. Oh, Balahulish! Yes. Um, it was called the Balahulish Goddess, I think. Oh. And it was a, you know, it was a. I think it was about two thousand years old. It was about an Iron Age uh, thing. <laughs> um. um and they're not really sure who built it or why, but they think it might have been um, representative of a goddess that lived sort of at the... Who's Loch? Loch Leven? Um, oh, Loch Leven? Loch Leven, uh-huh. sorry. Um, <laughs> and there's a, there's a point at Loch Leven which is quite narrow and maybe quite treacherous. And, and the idea perhaps was that um, it was a representation of a goddess at that point and you would offer a... Like you were talking about, you would offer something to her and it would mm-hmm. it would allow you safe travel but then I, I did a bit of reading and they mentioned that um it might have been uh an entity called the kyla like a hag goddess and oh yes um, linked, oh. and that was linked to i think she was sort of um she was she could keep young but she needed the waters of a well going back to wells again um mm-hmm. And and I think it was one of those kind of cautionary tales where she forgot. I think she fell asleep and forgot, and then all the water ran out. And now, okay, <laughs> and now she's this sort of um, uh, this this sort of hag goddess. But it was it was just interesting to me to reading that how there are these two sort of separate ideas about what this what this statue represented, and it's 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 a in terms of how it looks it's, it's a really kind of primal image of a, of a face you know and they've they've mm-hmm. set stones into the eyes and it's it's one of those ones where it's quite it's very simple looking but it's like it's staring right into your soul yeah. <laughs> there's something uh, just a little bit kind of um that ancient kind yes, of yeah yeah it has that sort of, to it. yeah yeah that sums it up perfectly it has that sort of ancient power to it it was just yeah. um it just really struck me that that the, the survival of an idea of, of what this represented and and in both yeah. in both cases it was like an, an entity connected with with water absolutely i think um scotland has so many um sort of natural wells and springs and, and many many locks um that I, I it's 
you can see why um, the, the definitely um, older cultures would have started to worship water or seen the waters containing divinities or um, beings, uh, supernatural beings and things. Um, I guess it, it, for them, it, nature would have been um, a huge mystery and something that they, um, if you attach, a, a, I guess, a god or a goddess to it, um, and then if you make offerings to that, you're, you know, in hope for either um, a good harvest or good weather or, um, you know, that um, the, the year ahead will be good for your family, things like that. And it's certainly a world where everything like that really, really mattered. And um, when it would come to, to water, I guess, it's one of those things where you find in kind of um, mythology and in folklore, Things have a kind of dual nature, so where you might have um, a kind of very benevolent um, kind of creature or god or being or something like that, there, there's also the reverse. So when things go wrong um, it, and something awful happens, then that that particular being or, or goddess is angered or um, there's another sort of um, another being who represents the negative side of everything that's happening there. Um, and you, you you sort of see that in a lot of the kind of um, kind of supernatural creatures, um, certainly, and the likes of, um, I guess it would be the Kelpie is a good example of that, right? Because um, it's 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 a creature that is comes up um, quite a lot in folklore, and um, so it's a it's a horse like um, it's described as being a horse like creature, but in Scotland, you have um, what's called a kelpie and also what's called a water horse. And, and the stories between those two over the years have become quite merged together, according to very separate things, uh, two very separate beings. And um, a, a water horse was connected more to inland lochs and, and things, and a kelpie was more to rivers and streams that flowed out into the ocean. Um, and some tales you find that you know people have been put in a terrible situation, um, whether they're you know on the water in a craft or something like that, um, or the weather is, is awful, something terrible is happening, and a water horse comes to to rescue them. Certainly, in places like Norway and Iceland, there are old um, folklore tales of water horses saving people from other beings of the sea that seek to do them harm, like a sea serpent or something like that. But with the Kelpie, it um, it has one purpose and one purpose only, and that's to abduct people um, and take them again to its underwater lair. And um, basically, its next meal, it's, it's pretty, some of the tales get pretty grisly. <laughs> it's not the nicest. Um, so you can kind of see that there's the, these two creatures, which are fairly similar, one of them um, being really quite a negative uh, being, an entity altogether, and the other not so much. Um, both of them, again, and shape-shifting is, is a big um, theme, I would say, a big motif of folklore um, as such. Lots of beings able to transform into people. And when they've transformed into these, these humans, um, it's usually you know, for, to, to do something deceitful. Um, there's lots of descriptions of young men and women being lured away, never to be seen again. Um, and... And when, and when that, the Kelpie is in that, that form, there's usually maybe a clue that it's not an altogether human person. And some of the stories describe a young man um, who is very handsome, but as he gets closer, um, you can see that instead of feet, he has hooves. 
um, and sometimes uh, their clothing will be covered in sand or a bit of seaweed or something and usually when the tail starts to, to gather you know to get to that point you know that it's not going to end you know totally happily <laughs> <laughs> so um Yes, they didn't have mirrors back then, so he couldn't have. No, he couldn't have checked himself. <laughs> he thought, okay, I can get away with this tonight, maybe not. <laughs> so yeah, uh, you got some seaweed in your teeth. <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> no, that's good. It's, I I love that. I have to admit, I, I love it when um, the the concept of shapeshifters is fine to communities. Mm. I, nowadays, that would freak people out, but back then it was like. I mean, now that back then it was still you know beware beware shapeshifters, but it was like yeah, you know. The, there are shapeshifters out there whereas now it's just you know, yeah absolutely you, you, would, you wouldn't you wouldn't get past the, no. the concept of a shapeshifter <laughs> would you no I, I think we'd be stuck on that for a while um yeah I, I think um shapeshifting the ability of of people or creatures rather to do that um it I think it was it really I guess it would really enforce um a story of making yourself really aware um if there was a stranger um in your midst or somebody you didn't recognize or right. something like that um and in order to, i guess in particularly to protect communities young people and children um and certainly i would say that folklore relating to water creatures and things with the, the idea in there somewhere as well is you know passing on maybe perhaps a legendary tale but is also it's a cautionary tale and it is really to warn people that um you know the the dangers of open water and um there there are a lot of tales which is quite sad really when you start reading about it of children going missing there's one particular hmm. one um involving the kelpie and it's actually it's a tale that you will also find um i think it's present in iceland and also across scandinavia in fact i would say um and it's about a kelpie and it um it kind of there there's a group of i think it's nine children um, who are spirited away on the back of this kelpie and lost. And um, in some of the stories, there's um, a tenth child who's been saved. Um, and then in some of the stories, it's it's actually it's even sadder that some of the bodies are, are washed ashore. They find them at a later date. And it's, it's heartbreaking because you know that at some point there's probably been a tragedy that has, you know, that this story is, is relating that in some way. Um, so I guess it's a cautionary tale, but also it's got a really sad kind of aspect to it as well. Yeah, the, the, talking of that, it reminds me. There's, um, it reminds me in, in a weird way. It reminds me of the sort of public information films that kids would get shown. Mm. I mean, they don't show them anymore to no. kids because they're too harrowing. Yeah. But I remember as a kid growing up in the eighties, mm-hmm. you know, you you get shown these films about not going onto railway lines yes. and the power lines, yeah. and and there's there's one that was around before. I think it was. It, it was out in the seventies then and in that it's um it's about children drowning in rivers mm-hmm. and it and all through the film there's this like dark hooded presence yes. on the water bank and 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 it's it's interesting that I mean those two ideas are I mean that's essentially a very similar idea, but mm-hmm. it's it's funny how it's just it's just moved medium, I suppose. It's Absolutely. cautionary tales do serve a purpose and and I guess at that time it was. I mean, I'm sure there's more to the to the Kelpie than just as a cautionary tale. But it's it's interesting how you can use the yes. that an, an entity mm-hmm. in the water as a as a as a metaphor yeah, for, for staying safe. It's, it's a really good way to reach people, and um, mm. I think certainly if if you were to hear something like that for the first time, it would be something that you would pass on. You would talk about it to other people. It's a very good way to to get an idea and um, kind of networking i guess through you know the community or 
even for it spreading on, becoming a migratory tale where it ends up in other countries and things. Um, it's obviously something that a lot of people were, um, you know, having to, to deal with and um, it became a part of folklore. Yeah, yeah. So um, just out of interest, was there ever a Legends of Kelpies at, at Loch Ness? There is. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really interesting story. Um, it, it, yes, so there, um, there is a story of a young man who um, I think he was described as being a Highlander. He's on his way home from a market and he is passing along a lonely re- a road where um, Kelpies are said to dwell. Um, you know, waiting for um, a poor, unsuspecting soul who happened to be passing their way. Um, so quite often they would appear at the roadside as um, an unbridled horse. Um, and this would encourage somebody to, to walk up to them and, and to, you know, basically, where's your owner? Where have you, you know, got, where have you come from? At that point, they would feel such a compulsion to jump on the Kelpie's back. And when they did that, that was them they were trapped and the Kelpie would um, disappear with them. Um, beneath the water but in this case um the young man um stumbles across a bridle a silver bridle that's lying on the ground and um he picks it up and he manages to um escape the kelpie and it chases him but the, the, he keeps running and he eventually gets away um when he gets home he goes to a spay woman or a wise woman and um she says to him that the the silver um that the the um that the bridle is made from to the kelpie it binds it because it has kept the temperature of when it was in its molten form and um it, it can tame the kelpie and the um i think it's it's a, the the leather that the um a part of it is made from as well is actually from the skin of venomous snakes where in the pools where the kelpie drinks from right. Um, so she advises him to keep it in his house and hang it on a crook and um, then he'll he'll always know great uh, fortune in his life, which he does. And um, then that, that um, at the end of that tale, it kind of passes on, but he passed it on next to his next family member and so on and so forth. And, um, you know, as well as escaping the, the Kelpie actually ends up in a rather fortunate situation in the end. Yeah, I mean, in terms of Kelpie encounters, that sounds like a like an okay one. Mm. <laughs> it's not so bad. <laughs> You've escaped with your life, yeah, yeah. so you're doing you well. Got a bridle, so. <laughs> yeah, it's a silver. It's, it's good. <laughs> it's, it's quite good though, because um, I think Loch obviously Loch Ness is is so famous for its um its water creature. But it's interesting to find that there are other kind of stories surrounding the area as well. Yeah, definitely. Uh, one thing I was going to ask is that. In in the folklore that you've you've um, studied, are there tales that sound like things like Bigfoot or UFOs or other other kind of paranormal phenomena that wouldn't normally get ascribed as being folklore? But if you look into the the details of it, sounds a bit like those things. I'd certainly say that um, from the folklore I've been looking at, there are lots of stories that are really interesting for. Um, I would say beings that certainly aren't altogether human-like. So there's what's called the, the holder folk mm. or the hill folk or, or mound people. And um, they vary in description. You have some of them which are more troll-like um, in appearance to some which are actually look like humans from the front. But the moment they turn around, they're actually the hollowed out trunk of a tree. Ooh. 
um, which is that's actually really creepy when you, when you it think is, about yeah. it. But um, yeah, that that seems to be quite prevalent actually in Scandinavian folklore, um, and certainly when um, you get into sort of looking at uh, beings like elves. Um, they um, are attributed to having a connection with trees and um, forests and things like that. So definitely there, there, there are a lot of creatures that are very strange. And um, there is light aura phenomenon, and I can't quite remember the, the tale. It's one that I'm definitely going to need to look up for you. But um, I'm sure that I read that there's, um, I think in Scandinavia, there is a... Um, I think it's, it's essentially a ghost light and um, people used to avoid walking past cemeteries or graveyards or anywhere that they knew that people were buried. If you were to come upon this light and if you were to get too close to it, then you um, ran the risk of seeing a member of your family who was about to die or even your own um, yourself, mm-hmm. basically, in this light, um, which is, is quite a frightening um kind of thing as well and um so i guess those two things would probably um stand out but the, the certainly werewolves um were you know that that kind of monster um that folklore exists mm. as well um there's there's some kind of interesting tales i think it's in shetland they they have um a, a monster there and um very much the idea of a kind of a werewolf type creature um so yeah there, there are lots of other really interesting um kind of beings and, and things like that to look at um, and also in these stories is there are there stories about dreams is the is the concept of dreaming was, was that something that that mm. um that norse and gaelic yes. communities mm. understood or did they i mean i'm just interested yeah, dreams were really important. Um, certainly for the Norse, they took dreams quite seriously and um, they saw them as messages that were communicated to them. Um, and so if you were to have a dream um, that was particularly vivid um, or about something quite harrowing, then um, that was obviously an, an omen of some kind and you would um, take you'd, you'd take something away from that. So um, it could affect maybe decisions that you were going to make if there was something pressing, something forthcoming, or or even just a sense of being, you know, be prepared. That certainly uh, dreams were a huge uh, thing for them. And I would certainly say that it was the same for um, the, the, the Celts as well. Celtic people um, had such a, a strong belief in the other world and the, there were many connections in um, our realm to that. And so dreams were another way of communicating with perhaps um, beings in the other world. And so the other world to the Celts, um, it was a place where the dead person's immortal soul went and awaited a time of rebirth. It was also home to gods and other beings as well. So um, if you were to have a dream and there was something um, in there that was particularly frightening or a message or something like that, that would be taken quite seriously as well. Um, it's a really interesting thing because um, I was reading up a little bit more about kind of dreams and um, it's, it's this idea um, of it's just random information that your brain is processing. That's what you're doing at night. You're just working your way through it and that's fine. 
but then there's this whole other thought where there are messages and um, some dreams that people have, dream experiences and things like that, which are a whole lot more and actually defy explanation. It's quite interesting. Um, and so it meant something to to older cultures. I think it still means something to us now. Yeah. Do you mean, do you, I, I mean, I, when we talk about this stuff, I, I still find it really well, relevant and that the, the ideas of dreams having meaning is still something that I, I, I have no problem in believing and, and mm-hmm. for yourself and in, in terms of the people you speak to and like the, do you, do you get a sense that there's still that sort of openness to these ideas? Yeah. I think so. I think, um, I think certainly people that um, are sharing folklore um, are coming across these ideas. And so they're maybe quite open to, to that themselves um, I think people are naturally very curious. Um, I think we, we want to not always have an explanation, but we want to try and understand a little bit more about something that we, we can't fully understand. Um, and so I think that if you're interested in, in mythology and, and things like that, then certainly you're more open to ideas of, of what um, certainly dreams and, and things like that might possibly be. Um, I certainly myself I, I wouldn't say that I'm closed off to any idea um, and I love finding out um, or discovering kind of um, other people's ideas of, of different things um, whether that be folklore mythology or something like dreams or you know supernatural beings anything like that it's always interesting to find another person's kind of take on it mm, yeah I'd agree there um, another thing I wanted to ask uh, is is there in Scotland, is there a tradition of place names that have a connection to a, a supernatural entity? So in so in, in England and Wales, for example, there'd be places like Devil's Bridge and uh, Devil's Dyke. Uh, in Scotland, are there are there places yeah. like that that um, that have a connection oh, to to creatures? Definitely. Yeah, definitely. Um, so. Gosh, um, everywhere <laughs> we we have a lot. So, um, yeah, I guess um, if you if you go into the Highlands, um, you where a lot of kind of Gaelic folk tales um, come from, and, and then again with the, with the islands, you're going to come across a lot of places. <clears throat> um, certainly where I, where I stay in Glasgow, there's um, a number number of kind of places. Um, if you go hill walking and things like that, you're going to come across. And there's a particularly lovely walk, actually. It's, it's beautiful and scenic. But it's called the Devil's Pulpit. Mm. And um, there's a, a very winding staircase to get down into the pulpit itself. And um, it's it's a sort of, it's um, a riverbed. So it's quite hollowed out, the rock surrounding it. And um, when that does fill up, it's quite treacherous. Um, so th- there's lots of, of things like that. Um and then I'm trying to think if I go back to sort of the, the Orkney Islands and things like that, um, where there's kind of lots of sea stacks and geos and caves and everything, that there's lots of uh, names and reference to, to, to those areas as well. So I think that um, in a lot of, of places we have, there's some, if, if you look at place names and things like that, there's definitely stories behind um behind that some local folklore as well yeah because the reason i ask is just because i was um reading recently about uh there was a there was an incident in the 90 late 1950s in russia where some skiers went missing and they've recently well they were they they were found they some skiers died basically and in the 
um, in Russia, and they don't know what happened to them, and they've reopened the investigation. And one thing that's that struck me from reading that about that incident was that the the mountain where they were found in the local language was called the uh, Mountain of the Dead, and and the area yes. the area where they were. The, in the local language was basically translated as as don't go there <laughs> and it and it just yeah it's, it's, it's the Di- yeah the Dyatlov pass um, incident uh, which is yeah that's oh uh, yeah I've, I've read a couple of books on it and um it's really intriguing and yeah yeah it's, um, yeah <laughs> I, I couldn't have said it better um but yeah it just it just made me think about that and then maybe the reason some places are named that is because well, yeah, don't go there. <laughs> yeah, it's some kind of um, ancient kind of message. You know, this this place really isn't for you um, at all. Um, it's an incredible story, that that one, actually. Um, and I saw recently that they're kind of looking back into it again. But um, it's, it's, I don't know. I think um, there's there's quite a few theories on, on what happened to them. It's, it's tragic. It really is. Um, I think... Yeah, um, it- I think it you know it comes down to if you go if you go into places where you're sort of in the wilderness mm-hmm. or you're you're in nature's domain then you you know just yeah you're 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 in amongst nature aren't you nature's not gonna nature's not gonna seek you out and try and hurt you but it it won't care if you do get hurt <laughs> it. it has its own force and um, yeah you know it's I think sometimes. Um, Gosh, you know, I was actually, I was watching um, a documentary on Mount Everest last night and I always find it just quite so incredible uh, what people or climbers will put themselves through in order to climb this incredible mountain. Mm. They come so close to death and the, the higher you get, the more your body starts to shut down. And even with all the technology that we have, it's still a perilous, perilous thing to do, completely at the mercy of nature. And um, and that that's today. So you can understand why nature in the past was such a formidable force for people um, as, as well. And um, there's, there's a wonderful quote, and I think it's from the James Macaulay book on um, Locks and Springs, and he says um, that mankind were knocking on the door of nature, but they were not admitted within. Um, I think that that's a, you know, a really good way to describe um, you know what people were facing with um, the force of nature and what it can do is is incredibly strong. Yeah, I, I, that's a that's an amazing quote. It really it really sums it up very very well. Yeah, now I think as soon as I read that, I thought, gosh, yes, absolutely. It really does describe, especially when I was looking at you know water. Um, it really does describe the the sea and the ocean so well. It's an incredible force. Um. In fact, with, there's another creature called the stewer worm, and mm. it's also kind of um, that that's connected to Orkney and um, Shetland. And um, it's again, it comes back to looking at the description of it. It's very much like Jormungand, the Midgard serpent. And um, in Shetland, they um, they they have a saying, and um, or it's a belief actually, and that. Um, the, the, around the world, there was a monstrous sea serpent and that it took six hours to draw in breath and six hours to, to let out. And that was a way of explaining the tides coming in and out. And um, with, the, 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 um, with that creature as well, it's um, the, the part of the story, um, which is it's a, 
it's a nice and it's a not nice part of the story actually <laughs> um eventually when this this creature this horrible creature is killed by the hero of the tale when it dies its teeth fall out and um they're described as being or forming the orkney and shetland and faroe islands okay. and um where its tongue falls out that becomes the baltic sea and then eventually where the creature um, where its body falls that becomes um uh, iceland and um it is, it's just quite incredible that people were, were looking at as some kind of mythical creature to a reason for forming these islands and things like that but um that creature as well was just described as being such a formidable force it was blamed for um storms and tides coming in destroying whole communities wiping out um you know for fishermen going missing, things like that. So um, another example of of a creature kind of and nature being so strong. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it just sounds like they had a, a more intimate understanding of of mm. mythical entities. Yeah, it, I, I think they were definitely more connected um, to, to nature at that point. Yeah, because when we talk about the things like this, it's I, I don't get the impression that I get the impression that these these people believed it existed, but they had an understanding of what it was that meant it wasn't like a, so much a, a physical entity. Mm. Whereas nowadays, when we when we try and work out what these things were, where we will look to we look to a physical explanation. I think that's mm-hmm. perhaps that that's where. Um, trying to be it's hard to be have a sort of rational to try and rationally explain these things because what you're trying Mm -hmm. to do is sort of rationally explain things that come from the imagination and and yes Mm -hmm. and i Um, i think that's where i think that's where um that's where the the answer is I, i think you know i think looking at the imagination is the is an area where investigation needs to look a bit harder I mean, in terms of in terms of study of these things i think it's you know it's mm. it's a, an area that perhaps hasn't been investigated as much as it as it could be oh definitely um i think that um i think it, I, I when i'm kind of researching um and reading and you come across something and whether it's describing another type of creature or the reason for um, this being or, or, or events having taken place and things like that. Um, I actually prefer sometimes when there's less of an explanation, less of a natural explanation for that taking place. Um, yeah. I think that, although, and I, and I do appreciate, like in the case of whirlpools and things, uh, that having a bit of an explanation in mythology. I, I like that idea that, you take something a natural force and then you you give it a reason for being that is something completely kind of um is creative it's totally creative it's it's imagination at its best really um i I really like that and i I do often i think that um nowadays sometimes we can be a little bit cynical um sometimes it's nice to leave things to the imagination um yeah get get that firing a little bit more um i think it's good it's good to be curious and want to investigate these things definitely but um i do i do think that um our imaginations are a wonderful thing we should definitely explore that more yeah i couldn't i couldn't agree with you more (laughs) it's it's funny it's funny you talk about that it it made me think of um in the most recent the most recent godzilla film Mm -hmm. the in that film they try and 
there's a whole bit in that film where they're talking about Godzilla and and and, and what he is and and I was just I mean I love I love Godzilla he's one of my favorite mm-hmm. monsters and I was just thinking well you don't need to you don't really need to explain Godzilla totally. he's just he, he's awesome you don't just let him turn up and yeah. and fight another monster that's all you need him to do he's he's just nature he's just totally. yeah he's just yeah there's you don't need to explain how old he is or what he eats or anything he's just Godzilla no. and and you saying that just then just made me think of that and you're, you're absolutely right like you don't need to explain everything and even things like episodes of the X-Files where they encounter something weird. A lot of the time it's just, it was just, a you know, they encounter something weird. It was yes. something they couldn't explain. And, Absolutely. I think those were and, the, uh, the yeah. best episodes. I love the ones where it left you with a, a cliffhanger at the end and, or, you know, um, they, they, have, they don't quite catch whatever it is that they're, they're out to get. And yeah. you think, oh my God, okay, it's still out there. Okay, that's worrying. Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> but I think sometimes as well, um, it's a shame when we're children, we um, we don't need explanations for everything. It's, it's, mm. As we get older, we're kind of, we start to question everything and we want to know why and um we, we lose that part of ourselves that just accepts, you know, this is the creature, this is the story, just enjoy it. And yeah. when we get older, we think, but why? Why would it do this? And why? How does it exist? How does it feed itself? And <laughs> these are things yeah. you don't need to know. <laughs> no, exactly. It's, it's important to try and get back to that to that mindset you had when you were younger. Definitely, yeah. I think um, there's a lot to be said, I think, for just accepting you know a, a story and um, enjoying it for what it is I think that's quite important as well I think that's actually a really important part of folklore as well because not all of these tales are um, really you know are kind of would affect our lives just now um, but it's, it's good to know and to have a sense of how people might have thought or felt at one time mm, yeah I, yeah exactly cool well well Siobhan this has been brilliant thank you so much for being on the podcast not at all thank you I've, I've really enjoyed myself it's been absolutely fantastic so uh, alongside the podcast you also an author you've written a book yes yes i have um the children of midgard it came out last year um so it's a viking adventure brilliant just to tell us a little bit more <laughs> okay <laughs> i didn't want to just start rambling about it there no it's okay <laughs> Yeah, so it's um, it's a, an adventure set in um, Norway and the um, kind of mid-Viking era. And it surrounds um, the, the myth of Baldur. And um, I think probably a lot of people will um, real, you know, understand the, the myth of the ring and, um, you know, from the Lord of the Rings. Um, that's kind of all around about the, the myth of Baldur as well. This is about um, the progeny of the gods um, who is alive on Earth and has to be protected. And um, there's legends and there are very many heroes and there are extremely um, unpleasant characters in the story as well, very manipulative. And um, what I tried to do was have a good look at um, the the idea of the hero and what that actually is and um, it doesn't always have to be the, the you know um, the, the the main chap of the story a hero can come in quite a few different forms and um, it really is a, it's, it's a good adventure and I, I'm struggling to not give away too much of the plot <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to do that um, yeah so um, I think that 
if you are a fan of mythology, then you'll enjoy some of the the areas that I look at in the story. But then also, um, I try to incorporate um, lots of aspects of Viking life um, that it would have would have been like at that time, um, and some of the kind of social structures that, that um, would have been in place as well. And um, so it, it's it's actually done really really well. It's um, it's been a bit of a um, I think I wasn't really prepared for it <laughs> at all. It was um, my first book and it's, it's been so exciting. It's been received really, really well. And um, it's just been an absolute joy. And I am, um, I'm actually currently just finishing up with a manuscript at the moment and we are kind of uh, penciled in for release um, in the summer. And um, this, it's a slightly different idea that um, I've, I've gone along with this, this new manuscript. So we're still, in the Viking era, and we're still looking at Norse mythology, and um, but just a slightly different angle, kind of um, a different way of, of bringing it um, to the reader. Oh, okay, so a separate story, not a, not a sequel, as such. No, um, no, this is completely separate, and um, I I am working on a sequel um, to the Children of Midgard. Um, Usually when I write, I, I like to create that world. And then when I finish, <laughs> I know that <laughs> that world is, is kind of, it's, it's complete. Um, and I, I, the, the one thing that people keep saying is, you know, when is the sequel coming out? What's going to happen to this character or that character? And I thought, okay, so their story has still got somewhere to go. And it, it really does actually. And, and, um, but I want to get it right. And um, I think, I think I'm, I'm what's coming together is, is working really, really well. And that, um, that, w- that would be more um, next year I would be looking to, to release that. So there's always a project in the works. Um, I never stop writing. It's, it just, it's a continual um, process. And um, I think the podcast actually is, um, is really good because it's given me and lots of areas to focus my research as well. And um, right. it's, it's given me a chance to share some of the research that I've come across um, when I've been kind of looking more into mythology and, and certainly folklore as well. So it's, it's great because otherwise I'm not sure what I would do with all my notes and um, my books, my endless, endless um, growing pile of books that I've got. So um, it's been great. I think that the podcasting world has just been absolutely phenomenal and um, just met so many lovely people. It's it's really, really lovely community, really supportive, which is absolutely fantastic. Yeah, definitely. I, I'd agree there. I mean, I, I really love your podcast. I, I think it's great. Oh, thank you. <laughs> cool. Yeah. It's, 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 Sorry. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's been a lot of fun. I think um, I, I I probably suffered a bit with nerves in the beginning because um, I thought, gosh, is, is this something that is going to appeal? I know it's something I'm interested in, but um, I'm never really too sure if um, it's something that other people will find interesting in. But certainly... I would say that, that folklore um, is really is doing pretty well um, as an interest for people at the moment, which is hugely encouraging. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree there. I, I, I think it's, you know, it's something like Folklore Thursday just shows how many people are yeah. interested in these things. And... It's, it, that is absolutely fantastic. I, I really followed that and tried to take part as, um, as much as I, as I can, but I quite often just end up reading everybody else's else's because i'm like oh my gosh <laughs> um it's an, it's actually it's fascinating what you know that the people you know submit for to to the, the the whatever the theme is that week um so yeah no i definitely would suggest everybody check that checks that one out agreed 
Well, Siobhan, <laughs> thank you so much again. It's it was yeah, it was great to have you on the podcast. Um, yeah, thank you. Oh, not at all, Rick. Thank you so much for having me. It's actually it's just been delightful. It really has. One of the most interesting things I hope to explore in this podcast is the nature of some of the more unusual entities and legends from across the world that have persisted into modern times. In the West, we live in a mostly secular materialist culture, where pretty much everything is presumed to have a rational explanation. I agree it's important to look for the simplest explanation first, but I do think Fortean should also be equally sceptical of the orthodox, as well as the unorthodox, and try to judge each case on its own merits. In some of the legends, such as those I talked about with Siobhan, I do feel that it is very hard to fully appreciate what life was like for the people who would have been listening to those tales. It was for the most part a tough life, though one set in a spectacular wilderness full of very real dangers. It's no surprise that a lot of folklore concerns cautionary tales, and those tales come from an imagination that is intimately connected to those surroundings. I'm not saying that Kelpies are real, but I do think that they exist in an imaginary sense. What we have to realise is that imaginary does not mean not real. Anyway, enough of my speechifying. There'll be links to Siobhan's podcast and her novel, Children of Midgard, in the show notes. Thank you very much for listening.